The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Leonardo da Vinci is not only concerned with transportation types, but he also seems to be concerned with the type of use that's going on. So he has this idea, very, very modern idea, that commercial uses were going to be on a completely separate vertical level of the city. It's almost a type of vertical zoning. What lessons can our cities learn from the past? While we're always looking out for the next big thing and the latest urban innovations, often the answer to some of our city's biggest problems have already been found and lie in the pages of history books or research papers. This week we look at Leonardo da Vinci's plans for the ideal city, sketched after a pandemic, meet the people bringing the pneumatic tube system to the 21st century, and how the humble drinking fountain has made a comeback in the Balkans. All that and much more coming up right here on The Urbanist over the next 30 minutes with me, Andrew Tuck. Let's start with something that's very current. How to recover from a pandemic that completely disrupts city life as we know it. After surviving a pandemic that wiped out a third of the population of Milan in the 15th century, Leonardo da Vinci decided to design his ideal city. Some of his ideas included an underground canal network to handle shipping logistics, segregating residential and commercial areas, and utilising tunnels. So what can we learn or relearn by looking at our urban past? Well, I'm joined now by Nolan Gray, a city planner and the author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It, who's been looking at da Vinci's revolutionary plans for Milan. Nolan, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us firstly what da Vinci's motivation was here? What prompted him to start to imagine this ideal city? Leonardo da Vinci was operating in a context not too dissimilar from our own. So he had just survived a series of pandemics that had wiped out a third of the population of Milan. And so he becomes interested in the issue of, of city planning as maybe a way to mitigate future pandemics or avoid the spread of these types of contagious diseases at a time when, of course, the Renaissance is going on and people are, for the first time, really starting to think critically about these things. And tell me, when he began to devise the city, because I think what people always find extraordinary about Leonardo da Vinci, that many of his ideas seem to be pertinent even now, that they they have some currency that lasts. But what did he know about designing and building a healthier city even then in the 1400s, in what is now Italy, did people have a concept of, 
of what was needed for bringing about a healthier urban environment. Da Vinci in this space, as in so many other spaces, was surprisingly really modern. So in some respects, some of his ideas hold up. So one of his concerns was decongesting narrow and damp medieval streets, right? So of course, traditional medieval streets are built around the human scale, very narrow, generally very tall buildings, not a lot of direct sunlight, moisture building up. So one of the features of his plan is to try to segregate different parts of the city to try to decongest different parts of the city. So for example, he had this idea that logistics would be covered on maybe an underground canal network, right? The idea being that the smelliest and most offensive component of city life at the time, which was horses, would be mostly separate from day-to-day life. So you would have the separate underground canal system. You would also have commercial on the street level, but the pedestrians would be segregated to their own elevated level, removed from this sort of stench and filth and commercial activity. Surprisingly, very modern ideas that we tend to assume emerge out of the Enlightenment, but actually here we have them in their early genesis in the Renaissance. Now, I've seen some attempts at building model cities going off of his notes and his his drawings. They seem to create a city that's almost something that Le Corbusier or somebody would have thought of, you know, this split level. There's a certain modernity to these buildings, external staircases, very kind of, I guess, almost sculptural forms for some of the buildings. Is that because we've tried to put our vision onto his drawings? Or or do you think that he, he was really a precursor of what would come many centuries later? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And of course, it's hard to to determine, you know, how much we're reading into some of these materials and and how much the ideas were there. You know, I would say there is a surprisingly modern idea that we can apply our rational capacities to cities. And by making some infrastructure changes or by retooling how they work, we can improve cities, right? So you mentioned Le Corbusier, of course, he had a lot of very similar ideas, right? Le Corbusier is operating at a time when he's trying to think through the relationship between the car and the city. So he has this idea of, you know, towers in the park and very similar to Leonardo, discrete pedestrian spheres with cars that were going on freeways that were separate from all that activity. This, you know, in a certain sense, looks very similar to what Leonardo da Vinci is proposing with his underground canal networks for logistics and then uh, elevated pedestrian sphere. But I would emphasize that I think what you're noticing and what I think a lot of people were picking up on is some of the modern assumptions that underlie this, right? It's not just that it looks similar in terms of what he wants to build, but there are similar assumptions underwriting it. This idea that, you know, we can rationally replan these cities that in many cases emerged organically over the course of thousands of years. Now, here in London, after the the Great Fire, we had Sir Christopher Wren, who came up with a planned device for a, a more rational city, which was flatly in the end rejected by the city or or ignored in the sense that that many of the people had to rebuild homes and buildings. They just went off the grid, the network that had existed before the fire. Now, in this attempt to bring around about a more rational city, how successful was Leonardo da Vinci? Were any of his plans adopted? So, so far as I'm aware, the city was never built, the city that he's envisioning you know, he was not working as a professional city planner. They would not have had any concept of of somebody who was a dedicated city planner at this time. You know, the trouble with visions like this, both in the Renaissance form of Leonardo da Vinci and more modern forms, Le Corbusier, these types of visions require pretty dramatic changes to how cities are normally built, right? So here in the US in particular, we did a lot of experiments with this where we destroyed entire neighborhoods and tried to rebuild them along the lines of some of these modern concepts, these ideas of towers in the park and freeways. And in many cases, it didn't work. Of course, to build something like what Leonardo da Vinci was proposing, you would have needed to completely destroy 
existing cities if you wanted to change them. The more likely scenario would have been new cities that followed these concepts. And that's how certain city planning concepts have been spread. So for example, the grid system. For millennia, planners have been developing concepts of street grids. But of course, in traditional organic cities, it's very hard to take an existing city and apply a street grid onto it. But when we build new cities, we do incorporate some of these concepts. So I think this work is interesting. You know, I think efforts to try to take it and apply it to an existing city are probably futile and, and bound to backfire. But efforts to incorporate them into new cities, I think it's actually really interesting and a form of experimentation that Leonardo da Vinci embraced and that we should embrace when we're thinking through how we build our cities. And I guess the other, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the equine route, as it were, getting horses to take you from A to B was vital. And there was a, a world of carts and all those kinds of things. But it was a, essentially a walkable city as well. And I, and I guess that's when you look at some of his drawings, you understand that he is, in many instances, doing something which is also feels reasonably modern, which is thinking how the pedestrian gets around the city and putting the pedestrian first. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly the type of conversation we're having today in most cities. You know, the horses were the car of their day, right? They were smelly. They generated a lot of pollution. They were very dangerous. You've likely seen the photos of dead horses on the street in the Lower East Side of New York City. So Leonardo da Vinci, I think, is rightly thinking through, okay, how do we navigate this sort of problem? How do we deal with the problem of these highly incompatible transportation modes being horses and humans on their feet? How do we navigate that without, you know, making cities less functional? And so that's kind of the approach he's taking. And this is a similar sort of thing that we're talking about today with cars. What is the appropriate place for cars in cities? So a lot of cities are saying, okay, yeah, you know, we're not going to shut down our ring road or we're not going to shut down our major corridors, but we're going to have certain pedestrian realms where cars don't enter. Or if they do enter, they pay a very high fee. The idea being to disincentivize excessive car travel. So, you know, it's a very modern conversation that Leonardo da Vinci is trying to have. I think more broadly, too, you know, these ideas of separating uses, right? So Leonardo da Vinci is not only concerned with transportation types, but he also seems to be concerned with the type of use that's going on. So he has this idea, very, very modern idea, that commercial uses were going to be on a completely separate vertical level of the city. It's almost a type of vertical zoning. And that, you know, residential and day-to-day pedestrian life would happen in a completely different place. Of course, that's the opposite of how cities in virtually all contexts have been built. People tend to like walking along busy storefronts. But of course, in modern zoning codes, we often do segregate these uses pretty strictly. I think we should quickly segue and perhaps finally into an equally important topic because you have a new book out and you've been mentioning the zoning word there, giving me a few clues as well. So do you see some echoes of thinking about this question of zoning and the the complexities, especially in a US context of zoning cities? Yeah. So, you know, I think Leonardo da Vinci is wrestling with problems that have been an issue for cities since humans started creating them, which is how do you deal with the issue of conflicting uses? How do you coordinate things like density to where you don't have traffic or public service demands overwhelming what the state or municipal officials can provide? He's dealing with really interesting and important questions. Today in the U.S. and the modified form in most of the developed world, we solve a lot of these problems through zoning. And here in the U.S. in particular, this zoning code very strictly separates residential and commercial uses, right? This is why you don't have corner groceries in most contemporary U.S. neighborhoods, despite these things being very, very common historically. This is why most U.S. cities cannot build much more than a single family home in something like 75 to 80 percent of the city. And the book, I argue, the book comes out in June. The book, I argue that some of these broken policies, which are based in, in many cases on very modern assumptions, has actually been a hindrance to the growth of the American city. It's made our cities in many cases less affordable, more segregated, less equitable and more sprawling 
than they might otherwise have been. And so in the book, I try to sort of go back to first principles and say, what do we want land use regulation to do? You know, how do we create a city where everyone can afford to live, where you're not bound to a certain neighborhood based on your class or race, where you can move to high opportunity cities and where if you want, you know, of course, nobody's required to, but if you want, you can live in a neighborhood where maybe you can get around on foot and stroll down the street to your corner grocery. But not on a horse at this moment in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am from Kentucky, so I'm a little pro-horse. But, uh, I'll <laughs> well, Nolan, thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. A fascinating story about Leonardo da Vinci. And as we said, Nolan's book, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It, will be out in June. To the 20th century now and to a solution that was a common sight in most offices and retail spaces across Europe and the US as recently as the 1970s, pneumatic tube systems. Using pressurised air to propel small canisters or capsules across buildings, they were used to move anything from letters and parcels to food and books. The advent of the fax machine and eventually of the internet rendered them obsolete. But contrary to what you might expect, the system is still being widely used in hospitals and large industrial works. Monocle's Alexei Korolyov in Vienna meets an Austrian company that's taking the historic technology to new levels. A hundred years ago, everything was tubular. As the great capitals of the West became ever larger and ever more complicated, New modes of transport were needed, and not just for people, but for things too. The solution was pneumatic post. It's not only in buildings, we are also connecting buildings. The system was invented in Britain in the mid-19th century, and by the 1920s, hundreds of kilometres of tube had been laid in cities across Europe and America. So the distance is not limited. It's just a matter how you do the technical installation and the technical planning. Peter Friedrich is Director of Sales and Export at Zumitzberger, a historic Austrian company that is one of the world's leading producers of pneumatic tubes. The company is a private-owned company. We are now 100 years. And uh, yes, most of our business is in hospitals, but also in the industrial part and everything where samples has to be sent. So like in steel plants, chemical, it's a huge business. On the production floor, there's a labyrinth of tubes and rows of canisters, ready for demonstration. All you need to do is put one in. So as you can see, there are two diameters. This is the 160 Uh diameter. So this is for goods up to 5 kilograms Mm. to be sent in a hospital. And then we have the smaller diameter. This is the 110 tube. We call it 6-inch and 4-inch. And uh, this four-inch tube, we will send around two kilograms maximum. Mm. So it depends on what is your target to be transported. The six-inch system, what you can see here, is more provided for automation. This is for blood sample receiving. This is for blood sample sending out. So you just drop the samples in here Mm -hmm. and it will be transported automatically to the lab automation. Here it goes through the system, then it receives in this auto unload station. Uh-huh. You will see that just the sample will drop. 
and the carrier automatically goes back and the sample is released to the automation. Pneumatic tubes may seem like a thing of the past, a relic of an earlier tubular age. But as Peter Friedrich explains, it's a technology that never really went away. In these times, it changed a lot, you know. It changed from old uh, manual-handled system to a high-sophisticated robotic system. Mm. And most of our applications, we are working in a direction that my vision is everything is automated. So nobody is involved in a blood sample transportation or in a pharmacy transportation. That should be robotic driven. It's fast, reliable, less uh, energy, especially now when everybody is talking about green buildings. And uh, that's the reason why I think it will be always in use. From Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. Now, as global temperatures rise, cities are getting hotter and the people who live in them are getting thirstier. Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana, is forecast to get hotter than most. One projection suggests that temperatures in the hottest month of the year will be 8 degrees higher by 2050. So, the city is looking to history to keep residents and visitors cool. It's revived the tradition of the public drinking fountain installing dozens of them around town. And there's even a smartphone app to help people identify the location of the closest cool drink. Monocle's man in Ljubljana, Guy Delorny, has been quenching his thirst. Welcome to Ljubljana, capital of Slovenia, green capital of Europe in 2016, and quite possibly the capital of drinking water fountains to boot. I've just been filling my bottle at Pogacar Square in the historical centre of the city because the water fountain season has just started and Ljubljanciani will be able to slake their thirst on the street between now and October. Jorge Tometz is the man in charge of fountains and more besides at the city's water utility, Vokasnaga. Drinking water fountains, there are now in this time uh, more than 50. They are in the city center, uh, they are in, uh, they are in uh, areas, in uh, green areas of the city, parks, uh, walking paths around Ljubljana and so on. It was a, a tradition to have water fountains in cities. I mean, you'd often see them built into walls, very sort of ornamental, mm-hmm. but, you know, for drinking as well. Yeah. H- how have you moved from this idea of a water fountain being a historical idea through to it being something that, that's an essential part of a modern city? In the last decade, it is very popular to put new and new water fountains in the places in the city centre or green rink or, I don't know, uh, kindergarten playgrounds and so on. Why have you been doing this? We are proud in Ljubljana, in Ljubljana city, uh, that we have a very good quality of drinking water, so people can trust uh, in co- uh, quality of tap water in Ljubljana, and of course it is promotion also for tourists that come to Ljubljana, then they can drink uh, tap water for uh, drinking water fountains they can pour in the bottle 
the water and they don't need to go to the shop and buy bottled uh, water. Uh, let's say today it's very uh, popular to not use plastic bottles. So is this the sense then, Jorge, that because we're going through climate change, because our cities are getting hotter and because people are concerned about these use of single-use plastic bottles, mm -hmm. for example, has there been a, a concerted campaign mm -hmm. to increase the number of fountains in Ljubljana? It's a little bit connected with uh, uh, accessibility of uh, drinking water as a human right, also in Slovenia, as you know, in our constitution is a right for drinking water, to access for drinking water. So Ljubljana is a good example of accessibility of drinking water for everyone, for people who live in Ljubljana and also, like I said, tourists. The water fountains here on Pogacar Square were the first to reopen this year. That's because this is the venue for the ever-popular Open Kitchen, a Friday feast of food stalls from some of the most popular restaurants in Ljubljana and beyond. And Open Kitchen's Spela Verbrich-Miklic says they couldn't do it without the drinking fountains. Open Kitchen is basically um, food democracy. You can have noodles for a few euros or you can have champagne and oysters so having free uh, clean fresh water that's available to people is you know very close to this value that we are trying to uh, promote and uh, I think that having water that's accessible and free for everyone so you don't have to buy it either in a cafe or bottled in plastic um, in a shop um, is, you know, is essential. In terms of the quality of life in Ljubljana city centre, I know that the municipality has been opening up more and more of these locations with drinking water fountains, drinking water taps. How does that work for, for residents and visitors to the city? How much do they value that? I remember when I was a child, you know, um, my granddad used to take me for walks around the city. We lived in the very centre of it. Uh, and I remember, that would be 40 years ago now, um, stopping in, uh, in a park nearby on Kongresni Turk uh, at the Amphora Fountain and drinking from it. So this, was, this is sort of natural to me, you know. I know it's been sort of not done in the you know in the past a little bit but now it is really coming back and it's uh, so um, refreshing pardon the pun um, to have that option especially if you have small children who get thirsty uh, very often <laughs> and you don't always want to you know either have time to or don't want to spend money for something that you buy in a cafe or in a shop you also don't want your kids to uh, grow used to the idea of buying water in plastic. Ljubljana is supposed to warm up the most um, in uh, of the cities in Europe in the next few decades. So having this drink, you know, drinkable fresh water available to everyone um, will become increasingly important, especially for, like as I said, for children and for older people and for, even for dogs. You know, lots of people have dogs. 
And this is what it sounds like when a dog enjoys a slurp from a fountain, well clear of the nozzle, I have to say. This is an area for recreation. So people run, people walk, and it's used very frequently. And for the dogs. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the dogs. dogs well. He's going again. What's his name? Basto. 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 Yes. Basto, Basto the seem, dog. Basto seems to really enjoy that, don't you? Yes. In the in the summer, he 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 really uh, would miss the if it was not here. He needs the water here. Yes. So do we. <laughs> All of us. <laughs> And if you don't know where to start with Ljubljana's drinking water fountains, don't worry, there's an app for that. Tap Water Ljubljana will direct you to the nearest spot to quench your thirst. That's bringing an idea that goes back to the days of the Roman Empire right up to date. In a city this green, you should never be parched. For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. That's all for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the show for your weekly dose of urbanism every Thursday, as well as new episodes of our sister show, Tall Stories, every Monday. Today's programme was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Propellerheads and Shirley Bassey with History Repeating. Thank you for listening, city lovers. There is-